Well, let's get into 1 Corinthians 15. Hopefully you are there already. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and we are coming uh, to an end of this chapter, and, and next week we'll wrap up the book here together, and I hope you've um, been blessed by this. And Paul right now is in a section where he's dealing with, again, uh, questions that have been brought up in the church at Corinth. And this time it's been a, a question regarding, you know, our bodies and our resurrected bodies. The church is kind of wondering and doubting, is there really resurrection for the saints where they believed in the resurrection of Jesus? But does that really translate now to a resurrection for the rest of us? And Paul's looking here now to really answer that question and to give some, you know, validity to a resurrected body. Aren't you thankful, guys, that we have the blessed hope of one day receiving a new body? How many people are looking forward to receiving a new body? Oh my goodness. I'm at a point now in my life where I am like in deep prayer just when I have to put shoes on because I'm afraid I'm gonna pull something, which I've done. I've like, you know, tweaked something. and I'm like, this is not good. This is not a good season of life where I'm concerned every time I have to put shoes on or socks. Socks are taking longer and longer now to put on. It's not a pleasant situation, but we are all longing for new bodies with all health issues. I had the doctor the other day and asked if, you know, high blood pressure runs in the family. I said, nobody runs in our family. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> but so Paul here in verse 35, he's dealing with a couple questions. It says, verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So here's these questions that are being posed. What's up with this bodily resurrection? Like how? And so understand these questions aren't being asked with a, a kind of you know, view for understanding. It's not out of you know, curiosity, but more so to challenge. These are skeptical questions that are being brought to Paul. Like, psst, the resurrection? Like, how does that work? How are they gonna be raised up? And, and with what body do they come? Like, give me a break already. This seems so far-fetched. It's sort of the idea that, that people are coming and approaching Paul. It was the same kind of skepticism that Jesus faced by the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees were a religious group, but yet they were a religious group that did not believe in the resurrection. It was quite sad, you see, that they disbelieved in something so wonderful. And they were oftentimes in confrontation with the Pharisees, you know, who are more spiritual on those matters. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus with this question like, okay, let's say one guy marries a woman, he dies, he goes to heaven, and now the next brother in line marries her to kind of have that, you know, lineage, you know, birth, and then he dies before children, the next brother, and so and so forth until the seventh brother marries this, which at that point, I think after, you know, the fifth brother, the sixth guy's going, I'm out, there's no, I'm not touching this, this is bad, and doesn't end, doesn't end well. So not a good streak here, but, but seven brothers end up marrying this hypothetical question. They all go to heaven and they ask, whose wife is she gonna be? She's had seven husbands. Who's she gonna be married to? And so they're all kind of skeptical going, if there's a resurrection, how are all these things gonna play out? It doesn't seem right. And Jesus just simply gives a, a good answer. They say, listen, you're mistaken because you're thinking kind of in human terms, but when we go to heaven, we're gonna be like the angels in heaven where we're neither married nor given in marriage. It doesn't mean that we're not gonna recognize one another, but we're gonna have a whole different perspective on what we're living for, and we're gonna be so caught up in Jesus, I don't think we're gonna be too worried about marital status. We're gonna be 
focused on Jesus. So Jesus says, you know, a, a simple answer like that, Matthew chapter 22 for, for reference. But many today will have questions regarding, you know, uh, the resurrection. What is that going to be like? What, what about if a person's like devoured by a wild lion? Like what happens if he's got pieces of him, you know, right? All over the place, right? May he rest in pieces, right? But um, what about if a person is burned at the stake? Like in, in, you know, Christians that were martyred, what if they're burned at the stake and there's the ashes? What about those that are cremated? People today have questions about, you know, cremation. Is that okay or not? Like what's going to happen in the resurrection? You know, what about somebody that's, uh, you know, been given a an organ transplant, you know? Does that organ stay with them at the resurrection or does it go back to the original owner, right? Like, how does that work? So there's all these questions that, that naturally come up and, and that breed this kind of confusion and wonder about the resurrection. Paul is looking to kind of straighten them out on some of these things, right? So one question, how are the dead raised up? And secondly, what body do they come? Well, Paul looks to answer the first question in verse 36. He answers the second question in verse 38. But before he gets into the answer, he just, you know, not the way you want to win people over. He goes, oh, foolish one. Just calls them a bunch of fools. Like, you guys, man, get your head on straight here, right? Foolish one. He says in verse 36, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases and each seed its own body. So Paul now, what he does is he points to the obvious observation of nature to see that a resurrected body is not something that we should be surprised at because every flower, every plant, every grain that gets put in the ground, it, it must die after, after it grows, it must die again to continue to birth life and to produce life. It's been quite amazing. My, my wife is a, is a bit of a gardener, all right, likes to garden. I'm not so much. Now we've been on this you know, new place, new home, and we've got a little bit more room now where we can have lots of gardens. And I become a bit of a, a lobotomy expert. Is that what you call it? Uh, <laughs> botomy, sorry. Uh, either or, it's kind of like my head spinning. So, um, but become a bit of a bot botany expert now where you see all these plants, right? Growing up and then they'll start to change as they begin to die. And I'm like, what's going on over here, honey? Like, what's that doing? That looks so cool. It's got like a new, well, it's going to seed. It's, it's gonna, it's dying out. Seed's gonna go in the ground. It's gonna replant. So I'm like, that's just amazing how God's built all that into creation just for the, the reproduction of things. But what we understand, as Paul is pointing out, what you sow is not made alive unless it, what? Dies. So we see that all around nature, in fact, Jesus uses that same analogy in John chapter 12 to talk about a grain of seed that must go in the ground, die for it to produce life. He uses that same analogy to reference his own death and resurrection. So the seed, interestingly, that you plant in the ground now is, is very different, isn't it? than what emerges from it. Which again, you just go, this is so trippy. It is so cool how God's designed all that in there. Take a tulip bulb, for instance. A tulip bulb is nothing pretty to look at, but you place that in the ground and out emerges something so beautiful and colorful and that you would think, how did that come out of this? But this is God's plan and purpose in these things. We are like a bunch of tulip bulbs, all right? We're not always, the greatest thing to look at. 
We look around, we're like going, oh, Lord, I really am hoping for that resurrection. <laughs> and, and you see, what is going to come is going to be so drastically and radically different than what once was. And it's something that we have to look forward to. Like I said, I can't be super dogmatic on this. I have a few scriptural references, uh, but, but I can't be certain. But I do believe that in the resurrection, all those in this life that were five foot six and under are now going to be like six foot six. And all those over six feet are now going to be like under five feet. I can't, I can't be certain, but I think, you know, first shall be last, last shall be first. There's, there's some... But the point to this passage that we're looking at is that our bodies presently, they're not designed for what is awaiting us. God needs to allow these bodies to kind of go and die for it to produce what it's going to produce. And what it's going to produce is going to be fit for and perfect for what is awaiting us. And that is eternity and being in the, in the presence of God and enjoying the very glory of God all around us. And, and God doesn't need to, you know, like try to reassemble our old bodies. He's not going to be going on some like big, you know, human scavenger hunt saying, okay, we're, you know, shark attack. Shark's got part of it. The rest is spit up on the sea somewhere. Like I got to start to assemble or, or taking action, just try to assemble all the right pieces to form. No, it's just going to be completely transformed. What's put in the ground decays but so that now something new can emerge. That's exactly what God is going to do. So Paul, now he gives some examples, right? Uh, from nature to show how each part of God's creation was designed for its own like environment. We have many different examples of bodies of work, bodies of God's creation around the world. And each of them are very different, but they're designed with a purpose for its environment. Look what he says in verse 39. It says that all flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial one is, is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So we see there are many kinds of fleshly bodies around, but they're not all the same. They don't you know, commingle. They can't, they can't breed together. They're very different, and they're made for different environments. You take a fish. A fish is made to be able to live in the water. God designs it that way. We can't live in the water. Fish can't live on land. But God has different bodies that are designed differently for its particular purpose and environment. And he gives examples all through creation. We see it in the celestial bodies, in the terrestrial bodies. They're all very different, yet all have the commonality of being created by God and being designed for that particular environment. He goes on to say in verse 41, there's the glory of the sun. There's another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So we recognize when we look up in the sky that there are different bodies in our universe and their glory is different than one another. So too, I think Paul's referencing not that there's going to be, you know, some stars in heaven shining brighter than other stars in heaven, right? I know you, you probably think that, that Pastor Brent's gonna be over there really glimmering. No, it's not gonna be that way. I think Paul's referencing this to show that our glorified, resurrected body is going to have a glory so different than what our present bodies do. And God's designed it that way, and we see that 
all around us. Why is there gonna be a different glory to a resurrected body? Well, look at what Paul writes here. We, we see why in verse 44, or sorry, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So remember last week, we kind of talked about these two federal heads, right? Who were they? Adam and Jesus, right? So here's our two representatives of the human race. And, and Paul's gonna even hit that a bit in verse 45, and so it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see that there in verse 45? So there's these differences, and Paul's making this point to say, our present bodies are made for the environment they're in, but they're not gonna be adequate for the environment that we're going to. And so these bodies need to change. We have an earthy body, and notice there's four things about this earthy body we see. It's sown in corruption, right? It's sown in dishonor. It is weak, right? It's sown a natural body. So we see with our natural body, this is the likeness of Adam, all right? This is our, our, our evidenced by Adam being our federal head. We're corrupt, we're dishonorable, weak, natural body, but in Jesus now, check this out, we're gonna be raised in incorruption, we're gonna be raised in glory, we're gonna be raised in power, and we're gonna be raised a spiritual body. So we see this comparison that is awaiting us that we have now in Christ. Our new resurrected bodies are no longer going to be corrupted, nor can they be corrupted. It'll no longer experience sickness or disease or decay. These are all things that we go through now that are made kind of in the likeness of Adam, but there's coming a time when that is gonna be laid aside. The greatest of all is that we're no longer going to be dealing with sin. And that's why we'll never be corrupted again. Sin is gonna be put away with, and sin is that which leads to death decay, corruption. Sin is gonna be dealt with. A day is coming when our body will be raised up completely new and it'll have glory and power because it'll be raised, what? A spiritual body, it says. I can't wait for that. I'm longing for that day. And, and Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse one to four, speaking of our earthly bodies, he says, for we know that if our earthly house, our body, and he likens it to what? A tent, is not a good analogy? I don't like hanging out in tents. I'll do it for a time, but that's not gonna be my permanent dwelling place. I don't want a tent. I don't enjoy it too much. Paul likens these earthly bodies to a tent, and he says, when this tent is destroyed, then we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Amen. So Paul says, we need to lay aside this, not to be stripped off of that which we need, but so that we may be further clothed with what we do need that will equip us now for eternity. See, as Paul wrote there, verse 45, we've all stemmed from Adam. 
He's the prototype of our bodies, right? But Jesus, now the last Adam, he's the prototype of our resurrected bodies. Adam was a living being, but Paul says of Jesus, he's the one that actually gives life. He rose again from the grave. He's defeated death, the grave, and hell. And he's risen again so that he might be a life-giving spirit now to all. Now, notice this though. It's not to all. Let me read on, verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, right? Just like a seed goes in the ground, doesn't look pretty, seed goes in the ground, and then that which emerges, emerges is what you behold and what you take in, which gives further life, perhaps fruit, vegetation. The spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man, verse 47, was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So just as in Adam, as, an, as Adam died, so too, we're gonna face death. But for those that are in Christ, as Christ rose again, we too will rise again. And that hope is directed to those who, at the end of verse 48, are also heavenly. Those that have put their trust in Christ, those that are, are, are pressing in to Jesus for forgiveness of sin and for life. Those that are in Christ have the promise and the hope of rising again one day. It's not just for all, but for those that are believers in Jesus Christ who are heavenly. Verse 49, as, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So this is wonderful. When we think about Jesus as he rose again, we're told we're gonna bear that same image. How did Jesus come back again? He came back and people were able to touch him. He was flesh and blood. People were to touch him and yet he was not restricted to any kind of physical dimension. He was able to, as we mentioned last week, pass through a, a room where the disciples are meeting after the resurrection with locked doors, Jesus came right in. No longer was the physical dimension able to stop him when he's walking with the disciples on the road to, to Emmaus. He just suddenly vanishes. He's gone and then he appears in another place. He was not limited and yet he had a, a physical body. He broke bread with the disciples. He ate with them. We're gonna continue to eat in heaven, I believe. Is that gonna be great? There's gonna be no need for dieting either. We're rushed out of bodies. No treadmills in heaven, gang. Aren't you excited for that? Not so much. I'm like, you guys are, you guys are crazy. Gluttons for punishment. You're like, I still want to work out. It's, it's my mojo. It's what I got to do. Okay. All right. But we're going to be born in the image of the heavenly man. And, and we see what his resurrected body was like. And it just causes us to realize how glorious and exciting eternity is gonna be. And Paul goes on to say in verse 50, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. See, our bodies, the way they are now, aren't, aren't made for heaven. They need to be altered. And this is Paul's next point. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. And here's the placard that needs to be on every nursery in every church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
Every nurse you need to have, okay. Verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now notice what Paul refers to this as. He says, this is a mystery. Now a mystery again was not something that needed to be figured out. It's not some riddle that had to be solved. A mystery was something that was once unknown and kind of hidden and concealed, but now in and through Christ has been revealed. This understanding has been made known now. And so Paul says, I'm revealing to you this mystery that once you may have not understood, but now is to be very clear. And that is that we shall not all see, but rather we shall all be changed. This is referencing the, the rapture of the church, I believe. This was, you see, a concept that's new, and that's a mystery because some have never understood before that they may be alive when these new bodies are given to them. That speaks to the rapture. Amen. We may not all sleep. Those who remain and are alive, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We will forever be with the Lord. So it speaks of then giving, getting our new bodies. Now, Paul mentioned something here at the last trump, right? At the last trump. And, and trumpets were used in the Old Testament to, first of all, declare war. It was to announce special times and feast holidays, to gather God's people as they prepared to move. And the Romans blew trumpets to announce the arrival of an important person. Guess what? The rapture fulfills all of this. Because after the rapture, what's gonna happen? Tribulation. God's declaring war and judgment upon the world. It's announcing something or someone so wonderfully coming gathers God's people together. And so the rapture fulfills all this. This is different. And don't mistake the trumpet here that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians 4 with the trumpet that's heard in Revelation 11. That trumpet is sounded by angels and it's to declare again the judgments. Everybody cries out, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whereas the trumpet hears the trumpet of the Lord announcing his arrival and the gathering of his people to where we're saying, amen, 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 let's go. I'm ready. You can't, you can't kind of fit the two together. They're, they're two separate and distinct things. But notice this is an instantaneous transformation in the twinkling of an eye. That eye can, can move, blink, you know, twinkle, in just a, a fraction of a second, it's kind of the fastest moving part of our physical body that, that we can see. And so Paul likens it to, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it's gonna happen instantaneously. There'll be no time to kind of get things right. There'll be no time to kind of, you know, settle things with the Lord. It's gonna happen in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, we need to live ready. Live ready to see the Lord, to be with the Lord, to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. Verse 53 goes on to say, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So these verses here almost seem to allude to, to the two different groups of people that will be resurrected at the rapture. There's the corruptible, those that have died and have been buried who are awaiting. The now, understand when a person dies, their spirit is with the Lord. They're in the presence of the Lord, but they're still awaiting their resurrected body. So the corruptible 
must put on incorruption. The dead will be raised up first, we're told. And then he says, the mortal must put on immortality. That would speak then of those that are alive at the resurrection or at the rapture. Those that are alive must now put aside their mortality so they can put on immortality. God gives both groups a new resurrected body that will never die again. Then we will realize in full the victory in which we stand. That everything now that has been against us, everything that has kind of held us back from the, the fullness of what God has for us will now be put aside. And then we'll stand in the completion of that victory, realizing that Jesus has conquered all and we are evermore alive in him and with him. What a day that's gonna be. We'll be given a body that will be made for eternity, one that will no longer be corrupted, no longer be able to sin, no longer face pain, sickness, or death. It'll be a body complete and made for, equipped for eternity, never to perish, be corrupted, or face anything of the flesh again. And Paul quotes Isaiah 25:8, there saying death is swallowed up in victory. That's the last enemy, right? Paul talked about where it will now be swallowed up in victory. We'll never have to face that. Think about it any longer. It's not gonna be great. Paul goes on to say in verse 55, O death, where's your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So Paul says kind of, as he's singing about these things, what a day it's gonna be. He's just overcome with excitement and joy. He just kind of goes off into this kind of, you know, victory chant, almost like taunting death at this point right now, right? What you got for me, death? That's right, you ain't got nothing on me, man. I'm in Christ. You can do nothing against me. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? You ain't got nothing. You're done. That's kind of like what Paul's doing. I was like taunting these things in just exuberant exultation in the realization of what Christ has done and the victory that we stand in, in and through Christ. Notice verse 56, the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the real issue or sting of the matter is sin. Because what does sin do? Sin leads to death. There, there's nothing good that comes from sin and Satan would love to make you think this sin is pretty harmless. This sin's okay. This is no big deal. But the purpose of sin, the purpose of the enemy is your destruction. He's out to devour as many people as he can. So the sting is sin that leads to death. And as believers, our sin is now dealt with because Jesus took that sting for us. Jesus took that upon the cross when he died. He, he took the weight of our sin. He allowed God, his father, to judge him for every bit of sin. He took that sting and that death blow so we could be spared from it. But it's a different story for those who haven't dealt with sin because sin brings separation from God. And we see here that the strength of sin is the law. The law becomes like an ally to sin. How so? Well, the law simply shows us that we're, we're sinners, unable to meet the demands of God for righteousness. There are many people that think, oh, you know what? I don't know if I'd call myself a Christian. I don't really go to church but I, I kind of live by the, the Ten Commandments. I live by the law. I'm like, really? 
How are you doing with that? How are you making out with that? Because that's a pretty tall order that nobody's been able to do. See, what the law does is it simply points out your sin and it points out your need for a savior. Amen. The law, the purpose of the law was meant to drive us to Christ. First to realize we can't do it on our own. We can't live up to that standard of God's righteousness. We need help. We need a savior and that's where Jesus comes in. He's the one that gives us the victory. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul points out in verse 57. Don't think that you're gonna stand in victory in and through your own works. You stand in victory through what Jesus did for you and through your acknowledgement and faith in what he's done for you. Again, victory is only through Jesus and victory is only for those who are in Jesus Christ. And all will be resurrected one day, but not all will experience life everlasting with Jesus. Those that are in Christ will experience that life everlasting. So, you know, there's a lot of people that have heard all this and yet have allowed earthly trials and situations to kind of de detour them and to distract them away from the Lord. In fact, just last Sunday, I had somebody come in and say, you know what, I'm done. This Christian hurt me. This Christian didn't help me here. I'm done. And they're just ready to, to walk away. But you see what Paul is pointing out for us here in this last verse is that this is our hope. It's found in Jesus Christ. He's not promised us a perfect, comfortable life in this world. He's promised us everlasting life in the world to come. And you see, Jesus doesn't need to do another thing for me because he's already done the greatest thing for me in giving his life for mine, dying on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin that I can have life in him. And, and Paul now says, don't let anything in this world move you away from that hope that you have in Jesus, from the promise of that everlasting life. Don't let anything distract or deter you away. He says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So with this hope that we have, what kind of people are we to be? Paul says steadfast, meaning be firmly established in the faith. Don't ever waver from it. Don't think, well, God, if I'm going through this, how can you be a loving God? Why are you letting me go through this situation? We may not always have those answers in this present time, but we know one day it's all gonna make sense when we stand before our Lord and Savior who's paved the way for us to have everlasting life in Him. Amen. And this world is very temporal, my friends. Don't get too hung up in this world. Don't lose your faith. Don't waver in your faith. Be faithful, be steadfast. And he says, be immovable. Don't let anything begin to take you away. Don't let anything discourage you to the point where you start to go, ah, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't, I don't know if I want to continue on in this path. But the moment you begin to be moved away, then you're giving up the ultimate prize, and that is life with Jesus in heaven. And whatever you might gain in this world will by no means compare to what Jesus has in store for us. Be immovable, my friends. Don't let anything move you away from what you have now in Christ 
and what is coming. And understand that everything you do right now with an eternal perspective is gonna be rewarded. It's gonna have value for all of eternity. Always, he says, be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. Paul, Paul would say in Acts 20, verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said that at a time when people were saying, Paul, don't go here, man. It's gonna be trouble for you. And what does Paul say? Ah, it don't matter. It's all good. Those things don't move me. They don't, they don't distract me or detour me away because I don't count my life dear to myself. My life is in Christ. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he would say. That's what it's all about. So may we continue on steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know one day we're gonna stand before the Lord and he's the one that's gonna reward. He's the one that's going to give you that life to where we'll look back and say, Everything I had to go through in this world, as temporal as it was, was worth it for what we have now in Christ. Paul, the very one that got a glimpse of it, would say in Romans 8, 16, like, that, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank now. For I consider that the present sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. There's no comparison, guys. We have it made <laughs> in Christ and he has a new body made for us that we will one day adopt and receive and live forever with Christ with no more aches, pains, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death. What a day it's gonna be and it'll all be worth it. All right, worship team, would you come up? Would you stand with me? Lord, we just thank you that you are our savior and our God. You love us and you've shown that love by dying on a cross to forgive us of our sins so that we might receive forgiveness of sin and thus everlasting life with you. And you are right now preparing a place for us that where you are, we might be also. And we look forward to one day being with you. But in the meantime, Lord, as hard and as challenging as the things of this world are, I pray that we'd be steadfast, immovable, and that our heart would be to carry out the work of the Lord, knowing that that's the work that pays off and continues on to be rewarded throughout eternity. So may we have that perspective. May you encourage your bride here today. Would you strengthen us to live for you with that hope in you, that excitement of what is to come. So we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.